welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa. Joining us in our third chair today is our beloved producer, Ryan. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Ryan. <laughs> I'm, al- I'm always here, aren't I? Isn't that the... <laughs> Not usually on mic. How's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually you're you're our uh, our shadow producer, our silent producer in the background. So we've been we've been calling calling you out, shouting you no, out. That's, that's calling, calling out, you out sounds like a Western thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> shouting you out on the last few episodes. So it's very nice that you're actually recording with us today. Yeah, I've been looking forward forward to it ever since we did the Westerns episode. Uh, looking forward to joining you guys again, and uh, I'll be back again before the end of the year. So, yes, our eleven days of Star Wars. <laughs> which which uh, film are you joining us for again? I am joining for Revenge of the Sith. That's right. Because I have, I mean, I have a lot to say about every Star Wars movie, but that 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 is one yeah. that has become uh, near and dear to my heart. It's the what some people, some people refer to it as the only good movie from the prequel trilogy. Some people do. Mm-hmm. Some people might say that. I'm excited. I'm excited to discuss. That, that it's me. I'm people. <laughs> you're, you're people. I'm some you're people. people. <laughs> it's, it's me. But we're not here to talk about Star Wars today. We are here to talk about something I did not write any words for in the notes. We are here to continue our November experience by not talking about first wave noir films anymore. We did it for a week and now we're done, I guess. That was time. it. Those three films were that, the only that was the only it's noir we really needed from the 40s. It's weird that an entire genre was made out of three films. <laughs> <laughs> Odd. Do you have a noir voice yet? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave the black and white 1940s and head for the in color neo noir 1980s. This week we'll be talking about three films the Coen Brothers 1984 debut, Blood Simple. Brian De Palma checks in with his 80s noir, Body Double. And then finally, we will talk about David Lynch and Blue Just Velvet. Just David Lynch. Just David Lynch. <laughs> Just- <laughs> we will talk about. Twin Peaks version 1.0 Blue Velvet. I, I'm saving all of my I'm saving all of my noises for pa- when we actually pause talk about for it. laughter. Okay. <laughs> okay. Or a song break. Let's start with what is neo noir. I know you both have thoughts. So, what is neo noir, Ryan? I mean, I always land up kind of just being like it's a vibe because i feel like while 40s noir has like a fairly concrete definition like it's a pretty it's pretty they're pretty easy to spot if you're watching one i feel like neo-noir is so amorphous that it it's really hard to categorize because it's almost like you're you're taking every piece of 40s noir and you're just like following that line of it through whatever other genre or film movement or location or you know it's so you know the it's easy when you're watching like Chinatown like that is probably to me the most like concrete 
neo-noir because it's it's a noir but it's in color and part of it takes place during the day and then by the time you get to the 80s i feel like i don't want to say that the term is meaningless but like i was looking at some lists of 80s neo-noir that had like 400 films on there and it's like everything from you know blade runner all the way to which is like sci-fi you know what which you know has also been done like alphaville and, and everything but at some point i feel like by by this point in time rather it's so amorphous that like you can kind of tag anything as neo-noir and kind of get away with it as long as like somebody's doing a crime or someone's seeing a crime <laughs> otherwise like it's kind of just a whole vibe yeah, so I actually looked up the definition of neo-noir because I feel like it's one of those terms that I use a lot and I've never actually like sat down and tried to define it. And the definition that seems to be the most prevalent is any film after the classic noir period with noir motifs. So yes, I agree with you, Ryan. I think it's more of a vibe. I think it it is very much like you almost can't say something's neo-noir until you see it. And then you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's neo-noir. That is, that is what they are doing. And it is sort of like a callback, I think, to those classic noirs. But like you said, there is this tendency to cross genres or combine genres a little bit more. I think, especially in the eighties onwards, you very rarely get films anymore that follow like those classic noir rules. But when you're watching these films and when we were watching these films that we're going to watch today or that we're going to discuss today, it was very obvious to me that they were trying to integrate some of those original aesthetics, those original themes from the forties into like a new paradigm of filmmaking. So yes, a vibe, but it's like a vibe that's often applied to like a new genre or a new situation. Classically, the Supreme Court did, in fact, define neo-noir by you know it when you see it. <laughs> that is that is the... That was the SCOTUS ruling on neo-noir? Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. I see. Uh, yeah. I think so far only one branch of government has weighed in on that. I think we're still waiting to hear from legislative and executive. I don't think they're doing anything else. I think they could have time for this. It's November. It's a good time. Nothing else happens this month. I think the one thing that you can say about neo-noir that differentiates itself from noir, it's, it's not as good. But well, that's yeah, just me. yeah, but you're me. like a classic noir fan. Like, that is your jam. Yes, and that's why we're only spending one week of noir vember on them. <laughs> <laughs> Who makes these decisions? Is this a producer thing or a host thing? Somebody's responsible. <laughs> I do have to say, though, that like, and this came up when when you were talking about neo-noir, Ryan, just now, we had a discussion with Jarrett last week in which he posited that Blade Runner might be the last film that goes like more traditional noir because it it follows a little bit more of those tropes, even though it is combining them with like that cyberpunk sci-fi. The more I think about it, the more I actually kind of agree, like the, the plot beats of Blade Runner while they are obviously based on Philip K. Dick's novel, which is not noir at all, they kind of do also try to integrate a lot of those more traditional plot beats as opposed to the films that we're going to discuss today, which are more of like an aesthetic choice. Thoughts on that? Does anyone? I've just been pondering this this week since Jarrett brought it up. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that's a good point. I struggle with the idea that you can have a traditional noir that's in color 
because it, in my book, even Chinatown is, which is like very much a, it's a color noir, if you don't want to call it neo-noir, if you really want to split those hairs. But I, I agree that Blade Runner has a lot more of the traditional noir plot points and detective story just in a new setting, if you want to call it that, uh, than a lot of than the, the three movies that we're going to talk about today. That's for sure. It's more traditional, but I feel like still the, the spectrum is limited once you transition over to color. Well, you know, Blade Runner does a really good job of having that futuristic aesthetic but also it's it's grimy. You know, it it, it evokes mm-hmm. that that original seediness, griminess of noir. And that's why I mean a serious answer to something we talked about before we started recording is that cyberpunk is probably the closest to traditional noir. You'd think it might be the farthest away, but it's but it's not. There is a, I, I guess you would call it proto-cyberpunk, now that we're just throwing around terms, <laughs> um, a, a proto-cyberpunk traditional noir uh, would definitely be Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville from, I think it's like 59? No, 65. So like, it's pretty well into, you know, the era of film that we associate with color. It's well after the 40s, but it's shot in black and white. It feels very... Uh, noir but but does take place in a in a grimy urban future i do have to point out first of all that all of the films that we talked about last week are set in california yep which we talked about last week the fact that it does seem to be a noir staple that california is the setting and blade runner is also set in la just a futuristic la so there is sort of that like callback as well But I also think, to your point, Ryan, about science fiction and noir, I think they go so well together because they have such similar origins in pulp. Like, they both come from, like, those pulpy uh, magazines, those, you know, dime novels, like, that that sort of, I want to say genre, but, like, that's a word that, like, applies to so many things. But, like, they both came from the types of books and literature that was traditionally looked down on as childish or adolescent. And I think that those things going together, I mean, horror was too, but like, um, I think that those things go together really well because of that pulpiness. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that there are noir science fiction mashups, even in the fifties, which is kind of the golden age of sci-fi. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And you know, it noir, if noir is a genre, which is also up for debate, <laughs> if it's a genre, I do I do feel like it bless, blends well with the definition of like when we think of genre fiction without d- diving into more specifics, like you were saying with like, you know, crime as a genre, which, you know, depending on what time period you're in, feels like a genre because if you're in like the 20s, 30s and 40s, crime feels like a genre. And now this, it's lost that sort of seedy status where like everything is you know, every so many stories are crime stories these days. Yeah, and right. we we talked about this last week, and it will release tomorrow. So, when we were talking about the original noir set in the '40s, it is a. I mean, having seen a lot of both of these movies, uh, style of movies or genres or whatever you want to call them, I don't think noir is an outgrowth of the gangster film. I don't think the two are really share a lot. They share a lot of actors, but I'm not sure they share a lot of DNA. 
I think screwball comedy is the is more of a relation to uh, film noir than the gangster films. But the the idea that that crime is such a big element of film and commands multiple genres in the 30s and 40s is completely true. Yeah. <laughs> and and. And and those are my well, favorites. A lot of it is like that disillusionment, right? From both the depression and from World War II. Like people weren't looking for like shiny stories anymore. They wanted the griminess. They wanted the disillusionment, which I think if there was a word to describe most noir main characters, it is disillusioned. So I, yeah, I absolutely think that's true. I am. I'm just going to point out that there was a big appetite for the those shiny films. In fact, I, the thing that immediately comes to mind is Gold Diggers of 1935. <laughs> like they they made movies called like that, and it just kills me. Um, there and, and there's uh there's Gold Diggers of 1937. It's a whole series. 33. It's a whole series. It's a whole franchise. It is a whole thing. This is not something I'd ever heard of before. Yeah, and now I, I actually, want to watch all like 26 of them. I, I actually think about Ziegfeld Follies first, but that's not. Actually, a screen thing. Um, I know they made a movie uh, about him starring William Powell, but yeah, I mean it's it's not as good. Those things are not as fun. But they also made movies like Grand Hotel, which is that you know it's kind of that first. I mean, I don't know. I think Grand Hotel might be where Altman got his shtick from, or the first person to do Altman shtick before Altman was alive. I don't know. What do I know? Neo-noir is a revival, or in this case, a revival. Are you proud of yourself right now? <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. It's the first pun of the podcast. No, okay. Uh, will it be the last? Probably not. Probably not. We're talking about David Lynch. It's Probably impossible. not. <laughs> okay, so Blood Simple and Body Double, both were made in 1984. Now, technically, Body Double comes out first. Blood Simple makes its way to screens in January of 1985. So much for chronology. It seems like this one makes the most sense to talk about. I would argue because it shares perhaps more with the original 1940s noir than either of the other two films. Tessa, take it away. Blood Simple, like you said, is the 1984 directorial debut of Ethan and Joel Cohen, who are people that listeners of this podcast, if they have watched any movie, probably have heard their names before. They are often considered the masters of rural neo-noir. I think about Fargo, which I haven't actually seen more than one season of the show, but I know that there's a lot of like those elements in that as well. Some of their other work also incorporates a lot of that neo-noir vibe. I guess we'll just use the word vibe there. We uh, have never, to this point, used vibe to describe anything on this podcast. I think it's good. I've never, I think it's yeah, good. never at all. <laughs> so, uh, Blood Simple, like you said, it, I mean, it is their first film, and it is very obviously their first film. Like it is, it is kind of a lower budget. It has a lot of that like student film vibe to it in some ways. Um, although I really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it isn't good. It is very good. But basically, like you said, it, it has a very classic noir plot. A uh, Texas bar owner hires a CDPI to murder his estranged wife and her lover. Like, that is the classic setup of of a noir film. 
And this film, I would say, departs from noir into neo-noir because, one, it's in color, which, as you mentioned, Ryan, seems to be like something that doesn't seem to go with the original noir. But it also is set in Texas. And so it's not that California, the population that you're seeing is a lot in some ways a lot seedier than the ones that you even saw in like the lady from Shanghai or any of those places. It's a lot more rural because it's not happening in a city. In fact, I can't really tell where this bar is. It seems to be in the middle of nowhere, to be completely honest with you. And it has more of like a Texas feel to it. All of the actors are speaking in actually fairly decent Texas accents The other thing, too, though, that I found interesting is that the term blood simple actually comes from a Dashiell Hammett novel, Red Harvest, in which the term is used to describe the confused and fearful state of mind that many people experience after experiencing or seeing violence. So the idea that like the sight of blood makes you confused or afraid and it causes you to act in ways that you wouldn't normally act in. Of course, the term is a little ableist. You know, the word simple has its has its issues um, in in the English language. But I do think it's interesting that it plugs back into that Dashiell Hammett noir in that way. It's clearly trying to make those connections, even just with the term blood simple. Well, you know, people who study these things say that when the fight or flight impulse is activated, your functional IQ does drop significantly. Uh, Yeah, but IQ is a eugenics thing so like I you know I just struggled with any part of that paradigm when talking about people lizard brain better yeah maybe lizard brain (laughs) is better um often people when they're confronted with a situation like the one Ray is confronted with when he finds his girlfriend's estranged husband murdered is to do things that are perhaps not the smartest things to do in the moment because you are so shocked and overwhelmed by the sight of that kind of violence, which is, that's really the scene that I think that the title of this film comes from. The the Lady Macbeth syndrome. Yeah, the, the Lady Macbeth syndrome, including where he tries to soak up an entire puddle of blood with a very thin shirt. A windbreaker. As soon as I saw that, I was like, there, <laughs> no, like, no, don't do that. That's not going to work. <laughs> Ryan, is this the first time you've seen this one? Uh, yeah, all all three of the movies that we're going to talk about today uh, were new to me. Oh. I, I'm one of those people that I like the Coen brothers. I've enjoyed almost all of the movies of theirs that I've seen, but I, I, I just don't believe that they walk on water the, the way that some people do. Like, the, they're just people who talk about the Coens in like hushed tones about like how great they are. And if anything, going back to this movie made me appreciate their sort of learning curve. Uh, Because I've seen most of their newer ones and some of, you know, but not as many of their earlier work. So going finally going back to their first feature film, it was kind of nice to see things coming together and see things that they've gotten better at as filmmakers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I enjoyed this as a like a style exercise, uh, I think, most of all, because if I struggle with noir, it's because I used to be a very plot focused a movie watcher and a hallmark of noir is that the plot doesn't really make any sense or doesn't matter or takes a long time to untangle a lot of this movie is based on misunderstandings or mis- or assumptions about things that have happened <laughs> or have been witnessed and so i really i liked the way that this looked and this felt most of all and it was really interesting to see like i think 
I think the Coens have gotten a lot better about directing their actors. This a lot of this felt like we're going to put the camera here and we have this these like great cast of actors. Like the performances are great, but it sort of feels like they're setting up the camera, they're pointing it at the actor and more of their like cinematic style comes out in you know not that there's like action sequences but like you know the uh insert shots of trying to clean up that blood and like you know the buried alive stuff like more of their sort of flair comes out when they're not trying to capture like an actor's uh dialogue and performance and i know sam has things to say about this person too barry sonenfeld who is the cinematographer on this film, also collaborated with them on Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing before he went to do his own films. The Adams Family, Get Shorty, The Men in Black trilogy, Wild Wild West. Funnily enough, he did porn before he he did this, which I was very shocked about. But uh, one of the one of his like signature shots is this this shot that happens in the film where you get the what Sam likes to call the evil dead shot where like the camera is like rushing um towards you know towards someone and it's in that scene where Julian is trying to like drag Francis McDormand's character whose name I cannot remember out of the house and so you see this shot where like it rushes at them and I I don't know like you said I kind of feel like Barry Sonnenfeld is doing a lot of the actual work of the aesthetic in this film I'm not like saying the Conan brothers aren't doing anything I'm just saying like this was clearly an earlier collaboration in which they were relying I think a little bit more on their cinematographer than they do perhaps later I'm sure others of the crew at this point have written about this but my first reading of this was from Bruce Campbell talking about what it was like to shoot with the Raimi brothers and and how that experience has populated a lot of things that have become, you know, pretty commonplace in American film and perhaps elsewhere. But, you know, what's really nice about both the first Evil Dead movie and Blood Simple is you really get the idea that people who have gone on to do these huge, you know, movies later on in their career, they pretty much had the ability to just start by like, making shit up and seeing if it worked or not. And and Blood Simple is not their best movie by far, but it is interesting to look at for that reason, to see an evolution of filmmaking. And I, I do enjoy that. I think that's one of, the, one of the things to take away from this film. And you said that he uses this shot again in Raising Arizona. The Coen brothers go back to this in Raising Arizona to comedic effect. It's great because after they do their next film, Raising Arizona, they take everything that they did from a dramatic perspective in this movie and do it for laughs. And that shows how screwball comedy is linked to noir, by the way. Some of my favorite shots in this film are definitely the scene with the interplay between white light and shadows at the end, which is very classic noir. You get this great shot of Frances McDormand sitting against a wall with like this light coming in from the window over her face. It's just, it very much felt like a noir scene, but you also get some more horrific shots. It, it definitely dips more into horror than I think the originals were able to because that scene 
with the window where he reaches along and then she stabs him and pins his hand to the to the windowsill is like I and it just keeps going like it just keeps going that scene and it is one of the more inventive things I've seen in a film like this and it does I think have a little bit more to do with horror than it does with noir Um, the same thing goes for of course Ray burying Julian alive in the desert it's interesting thinking about the the connections between horror and noir by the way I think there are a lot of connections between this film and a film we'll talk about later, Blue Velvet. I want to say two things about that. The first one is, if you go back to where Ryan talked about his opinion of the Coen brothers, and you just play that back when I say to play it back, when we start talking about Lynch, I don't have to say any of it about <laughs> David Lynch. So, But the second thing is, we get to see in Blue Velvet, and we'll talk about it when the time comes, a very young Bruce Stern's daughter, Laura, in the film. And it's great. Ryan, what did you think about young Frances McDormand? I mean, she is the best thing about this movie, honestly. Um, and she's someone that, you know, in recent years, uh, you know, as, as she's been more and more lauded for her performances, I think it's easy to forget how good she is because I feel like anytime she takes a role now, that role has pretty much been like written for Frances McDormand plays to her strengths. It's not that she's sleepwalking through it, but it's stuff that she can do in her sleep. No, no problem. And sort of seeing her creating what, what starts to become her persona whole cloth and knowing, you know, how she evolves into uh, Marge Gunderson in Fargo and like being able to see that progression in her really made me like I I loved her performance in this like her and that sequence at the end with the window that Tessa was talking about like added a full star onto my like letterbox rating for uh, Blood Simple because she's just captivating to watch like you you know it's 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 not quite a movie star performance because in my head she's more of a character actor. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, as soon as she's on the screen, you like sit up a little bit more because you're like, oh, I need to pay attention to what's going on here. Yeah, I think this kind of plays into my critique of the film because she clearly is the star of this film. And I wasn't sure for the first half of this film if I liked it. And I think that's because she wasn't actually on screen enough for the first half of the film. Like I kept being like, I don't care about Ray. I don't care about Julian. Like I want to see more of this character because she is supposed to be like the Coen brothers version of the femme fatale, but she's very quirky. She's very funny. I love the scene where she's talking to Ray and she just like can't stop talking because she's like so nervous and so worked up about everything but she turns into a final girl at the end, too. And so I, I really appreciated that sort of turn, the Coen brothers playing with that. But it was also interesting seeing her playing with that because you can she doesn't even have any dialogue for like the last 15 minutes of the film. And like you can tell everything that she's thinking, everything that all the emotions are just there right in every single movement that she does. Her performance blew me away. And honestly, like I haven't been Frances McDormand's hugest fan, uh, probably because like you said, I've seen her mostly in her later career and I haven't always liked the movies that she's picked. But this actually really revived my interest in her as a as an actor. And I, I kind of want to go back and see all the stuff she was doing around this time. Yeah, I, I think the uh, connections to to horror also like this, you know, 1984 being sort of the height of the slasher 
like I was really thinking about that during that last, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and just, you know, as we talked about with neo-noir incorporating other genres, you know, um, I think all three of these movies have a lot of horror elements to them or drawing or, you know, bringing in the kind of violence that you would mostly expect to see in like a splatter picture, you know, like that stabbing that guy through the hand is like a Jason Voorhees level <laughs> of violence, you know, except that with here, it's not so much the release as something that's even raising the tension further. And, you know, seeing him pull that knife back out of his hand after punching through the wall, I feel like would be played for like joy in a, in a horror movie. Like that would be a fun thing to watch, you know, a Jason Voorhees or a Michael Myers do because you're like, that's, that's kind of what those movies are doing. But here it's actually more horrific because the pain of, of having to do that is, is so well played up, you know, in, in the way that it's shot, in the way that the performance is like, it, it all works together to make it actually a, a horror element feels more horrific in a non horror movie sometimes to me. I also think it's interesting that all three of the men in her life, they're all more horrifying than she is. Like the idea, they're all like trying to get something out of her, whether it's her ex-husband who's clearly like abusive and going through some stuff, whether it's the PI who wants to frame her and then to murder her to cover up the framing that he was doing, or even Ray who claims to love her and yet fundamentally does not understand her as a person and is very paranoid about her as a person. And so I, I found that to be great because it contrasts with the femme fatale from the forties, who is very like deceitful and, and sexual and fallen. And like, while she is very sexual in this film and doing a lot of the things a femme fatale will do, it's actually the men who are being more duplicitous. Like she's not lying when she's like, I, I didn't do anything funny, which is what uh, her husband warns Ray that she would say. Like, And so like, it's, it's very interesting the way that this, like, she has no, I, she doesn't even know why at the end this PI is trying to kill her. Like she has no idea what is happening. And that to me, I think works very well for the tension in this film. Last shot I wanted to mention though, is the very last shot of the film where he dies looking up at the sink pipes of the, like the bottom of the sink. And I just loved how mundane that shot was. It just like tickled me in a way that like, I, I mean, for me, that's what I always think of when I think of the Coen brothers is their ability to find emotion in just mundane like moments. And to me, this just works so well to get that last POV from this PI of, well, like I went through all this and I'm still going to die looking at some pipes underneath the sink. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a good point. I think the Coen brothers definitely nail those moments. Again, I just think of Raising Arizona. Son, you got a panty on your head. <laughs> so it's a good time. It's a good time. I think it's really funny that you 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 mentioned, Ryan, the the slasher elements. I definitely think we see that in our, our next film as well. But before we get there, so I put this here. And you were both very emphatic at the top that neo-noir isn't really a, a thing in the same way that noir is. No real tropes. And then you both listed tropes anyway. <laughs> so why don't you guys talk about that a little bit? I think if there's a commonality to 80s neo-noir specifically, sort of dialing into that, I feel like there's a lot of directors especially pushing the limits on sex and violence and what can be shown in a movie. I re-listened to 
the you must remember this episode that Karina Longworth did from her erotic 80s series about body double this morning to like refresh myself as prep for this episode. And, you know, she has a quote from uh, MPAA president Jack Valenti about body double and why it was rated R versus X. And he's like, well, when you have softcore porn beamed into every home via cable that theoretically any six year old could watch if they get up at the wrong time of night. Why? How can we limit what you're going to show in a movie and and be so restrictive as to make it X, which is the death knell for commercial box office viability and 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 all that stuff? But I think I think a lot of this comes out of like this is the first generation of directors who grew up on film and who grew up on classic Hollywood films. They weren't inventing it; they were reviving stuff, paying tribute to the stuff that they loved. And also saying like, okay, what can we do that they couldn't show, you know, in the, especially like the Hayes Code era of Hollywood, and let's really push the boundaries. The other thing that I think is common to, especially all three of these movies, and the more I think about it, the more I'm now sort of like, associating it with 80s neo-noir is male emasculation. And it's ties to, you know, the feminist, well, like, I guess, like the first wave of the feminist movement was sort of like at its peak in, uh, in the 70s and 80s, where you had the like, sort of women's liberation, there was a lot of anti porn feminists. And so you had this sort of back and forth and back and forth about, you know, sort of what I would think of as the first wave of like political correctness, even. And so there's a lot of pushback and exploring and trying to figure out what does this all mean? And there's a lot of male paranoia and like I said, emasculation in all three of these movies and in a lot of other eighties noirs as well. So I, I think those are things that I really, really associate with sort of this period. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the idea of, you know, what can we do in the eighties in terms of showing not, telling or in case of films like the big sleep hinting you know because of the code but you know this is this is a time where the the rating beyond r was was x and of course in the 90s it turned into nc17 and i was thinking about cuz the first movie that really came to my mind and i wondered for a minute if i was mistaken was the 1992 movie body of evidence which is which stars Madonna. And it's a drama mystery. I know it's got some erotic elements. I never actually saw it, you know, because of what it was rated. But uh, there's actually an NC-17 and an R cut of it. And uh, so that reminded me, what was the first NC-17 movie? That's Henry and June. And so just thinking about that and and thinking about films that had NC-17 labels slapped on them in the and the the 1990s thinking, wow, these movies are not as graphic as the ones that came out in the 90s. And I don't know. I, I feel like Lynch gets closer, but but watching these directors push the envelope and thinking, there's a lot more envelope to push. But wow, this is a lot. The other thing I noticed throughout all of these films is there's a lot more peeping and voyeurism in these films, which obviously was something that Noir was interested in in the 40s, um, and Hitchcock was interested in it as well, which we'll talk about. But these three films dial it up quite a bit because in Blood Simple, you have the PI who is like literally intruding in on this relationship to the point where he's taking a picture 
of this couple like right next to them through a window as they're sleeping. He's like altering images of them. And so there is a lot of that like voyeurism. And then we see it again in the next two films as well. So that was interesting to me because I hadn't seen any of these films either. And the idea that they're really trying to explore and break down like what is it like what is the true horror of voyeurism or what is the true like what are the limits like how does that make us feel about this character the fact that they're a voyeur or they're peeping or whatever and it's a little bit more sinister than say something like rear window where his peeping it's supposed to be creepy but it's like you know, he's not like spying on anybody without their clothes on like we see in Body Double. And so, you know, there is kind of that acceleration of even that, like, let's take that and move it to its logical extreme as well. I also think there's a lot more emphasis on domestic noir than you get in the 40s. Um, The 40s does have a lot of domestic noir in it. Um, The Postman Rings Twice is an example of that. None of these films had really a detective angle. I mean, maybe Blue Velvet a little bit, but this seems much more interested in husband-wife relationships. It's much more interested in cheating and in that seedier side of like marriages, especially. It's interesting to me that that is the thing that became big in the 80s, because when I think of noir, I think of detective fiction mostly. Yeah, I feel like there's definitely a big reaction to again the the changing times and like you know the because I, I, I think it's a 90s thing but like you know the men are from mars women are from venus now that women are are liberated i'm using loose quotes around liberated but you know like what does that mean for marriage and relationships and you know if women can have are like quote unquote allowed to have sex outside of marriage like what does that mean for marriage and like, again like to me like it's all reacting to that cultural stuff and then using the noir lens to sort of like process that. And some of that's already there in noir for sure, but they're able to show more of it, like you said, and they're able to react to the feminist movement, like you said as well. So yeah, I think it's, it's like, Hey, this thing that we talked about in the forties, let's talk about it in the eighties now. (laughs) The eighties. The eighties. Everyone's favorite decade. <laughs> For pop music, maybe. I mean, there was a lot of good things in retrospect. Anyway, Ryan, let's talk about Body Double, a film by Jack's Notes, Brian De Hitchcock, or Alfred De Palma. I'm not sure. <laughs> How would you like to proceed? I'll give a brief synopsis because I don't think. I think if you Body Double is a movie that until I watched it, I couldn't understand how it was about the things that it's about, because I don't think that the plot really matters at all. It's like the premise is as much plot as you need. So we first meet uh, Jake Scully, uh, not to be confused with Jake Sully, the spaceman who turns into another blue spaceman. <laughs> <laughs> Where he is uh, in a vampire movie. And I really love the like horror, hammer horror style opening credits that De Palma kind of throws on this. He gets fired because he can't play a vampire because he's too claustrophobic to stay in the coffin to make those shots work. So he loses his job. He goes home. He walks in on his girlfriend cheating with another man. Immediately goes to a bar and gets drunk. 
runs into a guy from an acting class and ends up house sitting at this beautiful, amazing house uh, up in the Hollywood Hills that just happens to have a telescope that points down at another house where a a young woman is dancing in a silk shirt and her underwear and then proceeds to masturbate knowing that she's probably being watched because these gigantic windows are open and she seems to know about the telescope based on where she's looking and jake becomes obsessed with this woman and moves from peeping to stalking after he sees a man in the house and then she gets murdered and he tries to stop the murder because he's despite being a a peeping tom he has good intentions <laughs> and so he tries to intervene he gets waylaid by a dog she gets murdered and then he's watching that dog <laughs> and then he's watching late night porn in a rotating bed in a bedroom that has neon lights on the a wall rotating water bed an important detail yes a rotating <laughs> water I mean, if you were around in the 80s, you'd know that you didn't have to say that. You knew it was... That's what I said to you. I'm like, of course it's a waterbed. What else would it have been? And he sees a Holly Body, played by Melanie Griffith, uh, acting in a movie. And she is wearing the same jewelry as um, as Gloria, the woman who was murdered. And so he basically like auditions to become a porn actor but then also <laughs> pretends to be a porn producer and things sort of devolve into a nightmare state from there <laughs> i think um, you left out something so important there's a frankie goes to hollywood video in there oh yeah yeah, Come on. yeah. no i i was get I, I was getting to that um i i because i mean it was like suddenly a music video happened like he so he he goes to audition at the porn studio and it's like very mundane looking and they take him into a back room there's a Frankie goes to Hollywood video for relax which is a full on like if you excise it from the movie it works entirely on its yeah. own as a full music video for that song and then he's taken to get another another door behind that that goes down a hallway that leads to a bathroom where he finally meets Melanie Griffith face to face and has sex this with her this is one movie <laughs> yes one movie i want to point yeah. out not a long one either no it's it's really packed with i mean it has everything when you really when you really think about <laughs> yes it. and and that's what i mean like and then the tonal shifts are all over the place there are <laughs> moments in this movie that are hilarious uh, I think intentionally for the most part there there's pure horror moments there is uh you know a lot of the noir vi- and I, I think the the neo-noir Hitchcock revival feel of it is the thing that unites all of those different pieces together if anything <laughs> if anything I like that uh, I think I noted on Letterboxd uh, that it's like it's basically a, a psychosexual Michigas because <laughs> yeah. I mean De Palma is throwing everything in there because, uh, again, I I was referencing You Must Remember This. This is the movie he made right after Scarface, which everyone everyone now assumed was a massive hit because of all the dorm room posters that it sold. And the studio thought it was going to be a huge hit, but actually like was kind of a... I don't think it was a total bomb, but just like it was lukewarm uh, reception for the Scarface remake when he made it. And that was supposed to be his like blank check. And so he was like, look, I'm who knows how many other movies I'm going to get to make. 
let me just take the biggest swing I can possibly take. And it's it's all in there. And I feel like this is really blending Hitchcock, noir, and we can talk about how much of that of Hitchcock is noir or not, which I think is an open question in, in my mind. And then also Giallo, which is the Italian black glove horror crime adjacent movies. So like Dario Argento, not so much Suspiria, but Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Deep Red. These are like Italian, like gory crime films where women are murdered, usually by a person wearing like black gloves. So their fingerprints can't be identified. And they also they typically have like a some like dreamlike quality to them. So like, he's just throwing everything in this movie. And then like I said, and Frankie goes to Hollywood. So it's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you brought up Scarface. Scarface is almost three hours long, which is I think has a lot to do with that reception. You know, it's a lot easier to digest on home video than it probably would have been for its intended audience at the theater. But it is definitely an object lesson in trying to throw as many things together as you can. I know the last De Palma movie we had seen prior to this was the first Mission Impossible movie, which is uh, 96, I think. And it's, Which I will maintain is brilliant. If you have seen, why is the, it? But why is it brilliant? If you have seen the Mission Impossible show, which I grew up watching, that movie is brilliant. But because, isn't that interesting though? That's yeah. like restraint. Yeah, it's restrained for him, but it's like basically that show is not. It is not what the films are because Tom. Cru- it's become a Tom Cruise yeah. vehicle. But that first film, what it does is it sets up a very classic Mission Impossible scenario from the show and then kills everybody except for Tom Cruise's character. And so it is a brilliant way of setting up Tom Cruise as an action star in that moment. But it is also a that that whole film is just deconstructing the show in some interesting ways while still playing homage to it. Right, and De Palma does do restraint in an earlier movie in terms of sticking with a genre in Carrie. You know, so we're talking about, you know, a movie that was made in the 80s by a director who can do restraint when he wants to. But of course, as we know, the 80s is classically a time period that was known for its restraint. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very subtle time. I wanted to ask about the voyeurism in this because I feel like this movie at first I was surprised when it took the turn into pornography, but then upon reflection, I wasn't surprised because I feel like this movie is trying to hit us over the head with the idea that what Jake is doing is pornography, like from the very beginning of the film. But it also is trying to ask us the question, like in noir, there's so much voyeurism. Why is it okay for like someone like Marlo to peep on other people as opposed to Jake? Is it because Marlo has a PI license? Like, what is that really, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's licensed voyeurism or it's unlicensed voyeurism. And I think they're playing a lot with that idea here about like, where are the lines? Is he doing it just for sexual satisfaction? Is he doing it because he's genuinely afraid for her? If that's true, why didn't he call the police? Like, there's a lot of, like, questions in this film. And I don't know if all of them are really resolved. Yeah, I think this movie's lack of resolution on a number of things actually makes it better. Because 
I, I think that forces you to go back and think about all these things. And I think with the voyeurism in particular, I I agree with you that like morally, there's probably not really that much of a difference unless you start talking about intent and, you know, having a PI license implies that you're intending to do good things because most people hire PIs to find out information that has been hidden from them or find a person who's gone missing. And so... I I like the way that this blurs those lines. And there are many people who are peeping in, in this movie. And then on a, you know, psychosexual level, tying together voyeurism and pornography, I think is really interesting, especially at this time, because pornography at home is kind of a new thing, unless you like collected, you know, eight millimeter, 16 millimeter reels of stag films that you would like get together with your your buddies in your garage and and show them or whatever but like VHS is like you know that's the that's the thing that breaks through and you know along with cable bringing porn into the home and porn gives you a degree of control uh, especially when you can uh rewind or fast forward but it it is also in itself a form of voyeurism and so the thrill for the voyeur is sort of not having that control but being distant you know jake is insulated from you know being being hurt by it the way that you know he walked in on his girlfriend which like sort of started this whole thing and you know i think he's a very again a very emasculated character and being able to watch literally look down and watch someone else is a way of sort of regaining a little bit of control psychologically i want to preface this by the way by saying one i was a child in the 80s And two, I came from an area of the country where tower records didn't exist. I think the most shocking thing for me in this movie is that you could buy porn at tower records. I'm going (laughs) to leave that there. The other thing that I wanted to say about that, what you both said about Marlo and the Big Sleep, there is a big difference. There is a clear difference. In the Big Sleep, Marlo is trying to shut down the pornography. We can't call it that. You know, the closest we can get is to seeing a woman drunk and nearly passed out in front of a hidden camera. You can put the pieces together from that, right? But but Marlo is allowed to be there because he's trying to put an end to it, which is Hollywood Code approved. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Because you can't say that's what he's doing. But the fact that he's doing it is okay. You know, so that, that's part of it too. That's one reason why it's okay for him to do it. And... You know, this guy literally tries out for porn. That is, you cannot get the more opposite there. Well, let's add in the PI from Blood Simple then, who has a license. Uh, Think about him, though. We didn't mention this in the last segment. He's always laughing. He does not. He takes what he does seriously, but he doesn't take himself or the situations he finds himself in seriously. You could go so far as to say that that's a sense of amorality. Like, yeah, there may not be a difference, except for the fact that he doesn't care if there's a difference or not. And he's called a PI, but he acts more like a hitman. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, assuming like, PIs he has don't a usually license, take out though, kill. Like, and that's like how he's able to. We haven't talked about the Hitchcock of it all yet, which I definitely want to talk about. But one of the things that happens in this film is that. It turns out that Holly Body was actually the person that he was watching through the window, not the person who lived there, Gloria Ravel. And 
it kind of goes back to our thing about pornography is that not only is it that the pornography watching her on her videos is voyeurism, but the fact that she was hired to do the thing that she does, like her signature thing in her videos for a live voyeur without him knowing it does kind of feel like voyeurism on top of voyeurism, right? Like she's aware that she's being watched, but she's been hired by someone else who watched her to do the thing that, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of these like layers upon layers of people watching each other. Yeah. And of course, you know, we can't talk about voyeurism in movies without including ourselves on that list because we are, we are the ones watching the people watching the people watching the people like, you know, it's, it's voyeurs all the way down. And I think, you know, especially with rear window and, you know, with body double, obviously, you know, it, it's making us complicit in the act of voyeurism just by just in watching the movie it's like we're all, we're almost condoning voyeurism even though it's fictional and you know that there's a, there's a layer in between i feel like it is it feels weirdly more immediate to watch someone else watch someone else i thought this was going to be rear window for like the first 25 minutes of this and then i realized it was actually vertigo i mean it's both it was just really funny to me that this is called body double and I did not immediately think of vertigo. <laughs> like like it took it's me It's horizontal vertigo. It took me a while to realize yeah. like way longer than it should have to realize this was vertigo. It, it's claustrophobic vertigo. I loved the riff on the vertigo effect um because obviously like that was the first time that effect had been used in that in the film. Like that was a Hitchcock invention. I love the claustrophobia effects in this, like especially the one where he's in the tunnel and the tunnel just gets longer in the, and in the longer two scenes it that it mattered built. in the whole movie. Yeah, I loved it. I thought that was great. Um, you could very easily say, oh, well, this is a Hitchcock ripoff. And I don't always like remakes or remixes like this, but I actually think it works very well just because it's so it's trying to take those elements and like turn them up to a 10 and then like put them all together and I I think it actually works pretty well like in a bizarre way it shouldn't work but I think it does Uh, I I definitely think it does and I think that De Palma reveres Hitchcock to such a deep degree but also doesn't take that reference as seriously uh, as some others where he is able to sort of play with it and reenact it and and kind of make it his own and I I was driving back and forth to the grocery store while I was listening to You Must Remember This, but there was a writer who wrote writing about Body Double specifically that said it, you know, it was a love letter to Brian De Palma's father, Alfred Hitchcock. And I think that that sums up immediately that like this, it's so, it totally does feel like a, you know, if I really push the limits and I really like take the things that he was doing and and progress them sort of further and more aggressively, you know, dad's going to be so proud. Although, to be fair, as I told Sam while we were watching this, it's not like Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't have put boobs in his films if he could have. Like, this was somebody who was very unhappy with the code restrictions he was under. Oh, yeah. To out horny Alfred Hitchcock, you really have to, like, you have have to go all in. Absolutely. So the other thing I wanted to say, the other Hitchcock connection is, so I had never seen Craig Washington in anything. He seems to be more of a television actor. I mean, I probably have seen him in television and just not known who he was. I at first 
from this movie, I was like, well, he's no Jimmy Stewart. Like, you know, like, I don't, I'm not sure if I buy this because Jimmy Stewart's like, he let him get away with stuff because he's like the nice, normal guy. And at the beginning of this, Jake is much creepier than John, the character from Vertigo that Jimmy Stewart is playing. But then I realized that as the movie goes on, he gets less creepy as he gets more like sincere and earnest about what he's doing. Whereas John gets more creepy in Vertigo when he starts trying to transform a person into another person. I also didn't really know why he had cast Wasson until he started yelling on the phone to the detective at the end. And then I could actually hear Jimmy Stewart in his voice. And I was actually wondering if he was, if that was a purposeful decision on Wasson's part or De Palma's part or just an accident. I don't know. Like, but that, the last part of that movie where he's like yelling at people to like, just like, please take me seriously. Please like believe what I'm saying. It sounds very much like a Jimmy Stewart, like doing that same thing, you know, at the end of vertigo. Yeah. I also quickly want to shout out slumber party massacre uh, that comes out two years after body double and was written as a slasher parody, but filmed as a straight up slasher movie. Uh, So it's, very much full of tropes and is very there's a self-awareness that's sort of baked in but uh the slasher murder weapon in slumber party massacre is also a power drill with a gigantic drill bit on the end of it and so watching this it was interesting to see how they're they're both used and again like there's a a shot in this where like you know you see the the killer drilling down and the drills coming down between his legs and you know i i think if I have a frustration with this era of neo-noir, it's like, oh, we're just showing all the things that we used to have to hint about, but we're not really saying anything more than was being said before. So would you then say that the the drill bit was oversized, literally and figuratively? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Or, or, you know, to say it another way, uh, where's the money shot? <laughs> <laughs> Three more things about this film, very briefly. One, I actually just watched Working Girl for the first time a few weeks ago, and so that was really fun seeing Melanie Griffith play this role, which is very different than the one that she plays in Working Girl. And I thought she was great in it. She's actually one of the funniest characters. One, one could make a capitalism critique and go, nah. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say it's the same sort of. The moment at the end where she where she's talking to the the girl in the B horror flick and she's like, you're going to get a lot of dates off of this. That was like very funny to me. The other thing I wanted to say is I love that we get no explanation as to why Sam slash Alex wanted to kill his wife. Like there's absolutely no explanation as to why. And like to me, I'm not saying that queer people don't commit murder. What I'm saying is, is that this kind of goes into my whole like straight people don't know how to communicate or get divorces, apparently, situation in this particular film, because I'm just like, so you turn to murder before you turn to anything else. Thought that was good. They didn't really need to give us any information about that. And it worked for me quite a bit. Men would rather murder than go to therapy. Is that Uh, and of course, Mel- Melanie Griffith herself is a Hitchcock connection, being the daughter of Tippi Hedren. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That is a new fact that I have just. Is that learned. a mumble fact? That is a mumble That's fact. A- yeah. Mumble fact. Okay. I don't know. I mean, the fact that she nearly had sex with with dude on the beach. Like, 
I don't know. Kind of feel like maybe that's happened. I don't know. Who knows? That was that was the other weird tonal Whoa. shift of this film. Like, I is when this that happens, like, no, yeah, I was like, not. is he fantasizing this? Like, the tonal shift in that moment is so bizarre. I almost think he was fantasizing it. It does eh, not make knows? sense to me that particular scene. I will say, in a moment of Sam's head cannon. This this guy, the husband, right? You know, we the way that we see him, his his death is not assured. And I mean, years later, we know that he started over almost immediately after this because he starts his new life. And we see him years later as Mitchum Huntsberger, father of Logan Huntsberger, boyfriend of one Rory Gilmore. So... Just as much of an asshole. Oh, yeah. That doesn't change. That's how you know it's the same person. <laughs> that's, that's how you know. I did that's, it. That's I, I did it. Cannon. I made it. Yep. <laughs> oh, Tessa. I, this, is, this is ostensibly my film. The 1986 David Lynch Blue Velvet. But, but I just want to give you a second to share your initial reaction that you recorded in the notes. What the fuck? To which I respond, she wore blue velvet, Tessa. It's not that difficult. <laughs> Do you want it to tell our listenership what blue velvet is before we unpack the weirdness? Well, you see. <laughs> uh, all right. So, I don't know. I, I, I waited literal decades to watch this movie. It's been on my list for quite a long time. It's it's it and Lost Highway have been on my to watch list since the last century. That's that's how long it's been really. This is David Lynch's fourth feature film following Eraserhead, The Elephant Man, and the sci-fi classic that also stars Babyface Kyle McLaughlin, Dune. I need to point out here that Dune is the only other Lynch film that I have seen. To date, besides Blue Velvet. Now. I mean, you know. I love that version of Dune. Like, unironically love it. Sam, I'm a, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of Lynch's Dune. It is easily my favorite of Lynch's movies that I've seen so far. Um, and I know, Sam, you mentioned playing back what I said about the Coen brothers. Yeah. Uh, but that, that applies to both of us when it comes to David Lynch. I often okay. feel like I am... My instinct is to point out that the Emperor has no clothes, um, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to later Lynch. Again, not so much in his style. Like I think he's a very talented and accomplished filmmaker, but there's a fine line between I don't get it and there's nothing else to get that I struggle with. Well, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've also failed to get through the first two seasons of Twin Peaks. I've seen the first season multiple times and a couple of episodes of the second season. And putting that together with this experience, I start to think that a large part of David Lynch is suspension of disbelief. Are you ready to roll with him and just assume reality is the reality he's giving you? And so what the, the, the question of whether or not there's more there there I think is is predicated on that. Like, are you willing to see what he wants you to see or are you unable, not even unwilling, but unable to go 
this is so divorced from reality. I cannot follow you where it is you want me to go. Uh, I was gonna say I often feel like uh, to use another <laughs> another another example. I often feel like Ethan Soupley's character in Mallrats, looking at the magic eye painting and just staring at it for days and being I like, did. "I know that there's something in there that I'm supposed to see. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but everyone else seems to get it." And so I, you know, I, I've seen more and more of Lynch's stuff. I've been trying to prioritize them as they've been showing in repertoire screenings because mm-hmm. they are that they are a struggle for me to get through at home mm-hmm. and you know in the theater just helps a lot within a immersion but i feel like my best strategy for lynch has been to watch and let my mind wander because i feel like mm-hmm. there's a subconscious interaction that's happening that like, to your point sam like you just kind of need to go with it and if you start looking for things I feel like I get hung up on the looking and not because I'm and I get frustrated because I'm not finding anything when I really just need to like sit back and let it happen. I will say shout out to Tessa. I feel like I can watch any movie and get through it because like it, you know, she'll she's a gamer. She'll she'll watch them. And it's it's really great. So, I'm I can't going to say right now though that body double was easier for me to like roll with it than this film like I was there for body double I was ready but like this one I just had a hard time rolling with it I want to see Eraserhead and the Elephant Man but I have to tell you I'm more excited about and and I joke about this I honestly can't tell you if I've seen Wild at Heart or not I think I have actually but Definitely Lost Highway, which has a killer soundtrack. I want to see that. And The Straight Story. So pretty much, like, for somebody who is as suspicious of David Lynch as I am, I, I kind of want to see it all. And uh, that leaves out the one with, um, oh, the one before Inland Empire, too. Mulholland Drive. Which is funny because there's a movie called Mulholland Falls as well, and I can't keep them straight. <laughs> I will say Lost Highway is probably my favorite non-Dune David Lynch movie that I've seen so far. And one of the things that you have to be really careful about when you're talking about David Lynch is you just kind of, you could like circle around the periphery and not actually talk about the film, which is what we've been doing. But I want to do it for one more second here because I have a question for both of you. Is there anything, anything, any single thing in Blue Velvet that is as bonkers, out there, wild as Sting in Dune. I don't think that's bonkers or wild. I think Sting is the perfect <laughs> casting for that role, and I will not hear any slander. That wasn't slander. And I, I kind of want him to be cast again in this next Dune film. Too. Not de-aged, I just want him to be in it. <laughs> I agree with what Tessa says with the caveat that I think there are various flavors of wild and out there. I think that Sting in Dune is the glorious golden uh, wild and out there, while Dennis Hopper in Blue Velvet is the dark and sinister (laughs) wild and out there. I think there's probably no better way to talk about David Lynch, by the way, than to do what Tessa did, which is to disagree with the premise of the question. 
I think that's what David Lynch's whole like deal is the the defiance of expectations and it, Blue Velvet could be a film noir movie. It could be psychological horror. That's how it's described. I don't know about that one. It could be a lot of different things, but. It's hard to talk about this movie with ta- without talking about Twin Peaks, which I know Tessa hasn't seen, and that's why it's going to be on the list of next year's November. But that's a whole year from now. What I will say, though, is that this movie is set in the 1980s, just like Twin Peaks is set in the 1990s. This is not the 1980s, and Twin Peaks is not the 1990s, except when it's convenient for it to be so. Otherwise, it's the 1950s. In other words, David Lynch is disagreeing with the premise of what these decades are. And I also think because this is a small town, or it's supposed to be a small town, I don't know, that was like the least surprising part for me, because I actually do think there are small towns that stick in certain decades longer than perhaps cities do or other places do. So it doesn't actually surprise me that you would have a town like this in the 80s that still very much seems like it's stuck in the 50s. Yes. And this is this goes back to a theme, Ryan, that I think you brought up earlier, is it's making the subtext text. What what Lynch is trying to do here is saying this is a a place that has not evolved beyond that sense of morality. But some people have, although it's ironic it's Dean Stockwell and it's basically beat culture, which is still from the 50s. Like the bad guys are still stuck in the 50s too in some different ways. But he he's dragging that subtext out and basically daring you to go, wait a minute, this isn't what the 80s look like at all, which is what I did, but that's okay. So like I said, I get it. This is the horror of a small town, sure, fine, whatever. Yeah, it's it's sort of like how every version of Dracula, no matter when it's set, Transylvania is stuck in the 1880s or 90s. I mean, we yeah, I mean, I think the point is, and I think what David Lynch might say, maybe, you never really know, but he might agree with you that he's just doing the same thing other people have done, which is point out that we're stuck in different times. I don't know what he would say. I have no idea. All I can hear in my head is him yelling about watching movies on an iPhone. <laughs> So, this is a film about a young man who comes home from college and a- after his dad has suffered an accident, our young hero, played by Kyle McLaughlin, comes home, cuts through a field to get back home, sees a severed ear, and from that becomes embroiled in a mystery surrounding... Uh, mm, let's just say a femme fatale played by Isabella Rossellini, her sadistic, lots of other istic person who's controlling her life played by Dennis Hopper. There is the, the police detective whose daughter wants to help. Kyle McLaughlin's character investigate why he wants to investigate unclear why she wants to help unclear why Dennis Hopper's character is the way he is unclear they just are hijinks ensue I 
lot, uh, she sings Blue Velvet like three times, and it's great. Yeah, the Blue Velvet song was definitely the best part of the soundtrack in all of its iterations in this film. I do have a thought about this. Is this about like counterculture? Is this about him like seeking out the seediness to balance out the 1950s wholesomeness that he grew up with? I don't know. I feel like Dean Stockwell, like lip syncing Roy Orbison, I think is counterculture bingo. So like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he finds it. He was looking for it. He sure as hell found it. If I have a hot take on Blue Velvet, uh, it's that this feels like a stealth remake of The Graduate. Um, yes. And so like, but just more seedy and, you know, digging into the stuff that all the other people in the town are sort of doing behind closed doors or closed closet doors, as the case may be. Yeah. And the thing that I think is interesting about both this movie and Twin Peaks, like everything everything that happens makes sense like okay that's real i know that happens in reality but then when you add any one thing to any one or more other thing it's like whoa this is a causal chain of events i've never seen happen in the real world and i hope i never do so i think my real problem with this film it isn't really with any of the actors or anything like that but none of the characters all of the characters in this film are very opaque it's very difficult to know exactly what they're going to do next in any given moment. And it is very difficult for me to get a handle on their motivations for what they do. Kyle McLaughlin is a wonderful actor, but I think he's very wooden in this film. And I think that's on purpose. But it's also just, I don't know, like, again, there doesn't seem to be a lot of explanation for a lot of the choices that are made here, um, except for perhaps um, Frank who we're just supposed to believe is a psychopath. You know, that's like the only person that I could really get a handle on. I like, Ryan, what you said, thinking about The Graduate. And I think the most noir thing about this film is basically seeing The Graduate through a noir lens. You know, and I have questions here in a moment, not rhetorical questions, questions I need you both to answer. But before we get to that, I, I think a lot of this is premised on the idea that the the center of this film, if you believe that Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern's characters are the center of the film, if, if Jeffrey and Sandy are the center of the film, which I think they are, the question is, what is for a, for a boy or a young man, however you want to say, Kyle McLaughlin, 19, 18, 19 years old. The draw between that femme fatale, that older woman, the the noir Mrs. Robinson, and and then Sandy, the wholesome high school girl, right? Like, who is he more attracted to? Why? How will it end up? But through a noir lens. And then there's other things that happen. But but to that, I have questions as I promised. The first question I need you guys to answer, why in the world does Sandy's dad continue to let Jeff see Sandy after he knows that Jeff has been like involved in this whole thing? I want answers. Why? Why does, why does, why? Because the plot has to happen, Sam. That is a terrible answer. (laughs) I won't accept it. My answer is (laughs) ACAB. 
always like, she better not be involved. Oh, but you can take her on a date tomorrow night. That's fine. What the fuck? Is the, okay, so we make a lot about the ear. The ear. You want to talk about things that need to be made to make the plot go? Nobody else loses an ear. Yeah, I don't actually know whose ear this is. Like, we assume it's her husband, who we, I don't think, ever see on screen. Is the whole yeah. ear cutting off thing a red herring? Did I kept expecting someone else's ear to get cut off. Yes. Like, I kept right. checking Kyle McLaughlin's ears after every single encounter with someone else because I thought I thought there was going to be a mirroring of that plot line, but there wasn't. It just it's it's like the first clue. Make that's it all it is. It's make it make thing, sense, Ryan. It's the thing that's supposed to bring the detective quote unquote in. Oh, I was gonna say I kept waiting for an earless person. Yeah. Like you know, or someone with you know, with like a bandaged side of their head and be like, Oh, that's the even if they didn't address it, at least a signal to us that this ear is connected. But it doesn't I mean, it doesn't matter, but and I had totally forgotten about the ear until the ear or an ear comes back at the very end of the movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, this whole thing started with some ear stuff. I, I don't <laughs> know. I got stuff. nothing. <laughs> I Yeah, it could be like a callback to the fugitive television show. The one-eared man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite part of this movie, <laughs> it's just the best part. So Sandy is still in high school. And she, her boyfriend is like on the football team. His name's Mike, because of course it is. And so one of the tensions in this movie about a psychopath who is kidnapped, a grown woman's family, tortured, possibly murdered. There's guns involved. But the most important tension of this movie is Mike better not find out that Sandy is out with Jeffrey. <laughs> and so... And so, David Lynch pays the hell out of that tension in just the most spectacular way. It, you know, there's a scene where the two of them are in a car and they're being chased. And I looked over at Tessa. I was like, it's Mike. It's Mike. It's not Dennis Hopper. It's Mike. Sure enough, it was because he's found out. And they chase, you know, and he gets all the way to the house, to his house. They get out of the car and Mike is about to beat the shit out of Jeffrey. He is going to get his comeuppance for stealing Sandy away from him. And then Isabella Rossellini's character, Dorothy, shows up completely naked, beaten up. And Mike is like, nope, I wandered into the wrong movie. I'm sorry. I'm out of here. And so it was so great. He love- apologizes. He's like, I am <laughs> so apologize. sorry, man. And just like leaves. It was such a moment. I was like, that is the correct. The only sane thing that happens in this movie is you see something Lynchian <laughs> happening in real life and you excuse yourself and you leave. <laughs> that is the only true thing about this film. And so my question for you both is Mike the high school football jilted ex-boyfriend, the smartest person in this entire film. Yeah, I think so. And his his, his two little like henchmen are like, I thought you were going to beat the shit out of him. It's like, no, dude, I am not. It's like if Biff had discovered time travel before he found the almanac, he would have yeah. been like, 
I'm I'm out. I don't know what's going on here, but I do not want to be part of this old man and this high school kids deal. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I will have to say that my favorite moment in this is actually Laura Dern, who I've I've never seen her so young in a film. So that was really interesting seeing like her at the beginning of her career. But like my favorite scene is her trying to explain her dream to Jeffrey because it's just so bizarre but absolutely i believe that this character bases her decisions off of her weird dreams like that was something that like really stuck out to me where she was like it was all darkness and there were robins and the robins were love and i just was like yeah that is that is this white girl that is this person you are going to love twin peaks Uh, i'm sure i will really gonna love it i don't Again, I did not like this film, but it did have some really good set pieces in it. And I like weird films. Like, I enjoy films when they're very weird. I enjoyed Body Double. But I think at the end of the day, I don't like getting to the end of a film and asking, like, what's the point of this film? Like, I don't, I just, I got through this film and I didn't feel any sense of, like, catharsis. I didn't feel any sense of, like, I know what this film is about. So you you brought up the birds thing. And so I wanted to, I wanted to ask Ryan about this in a second, about what kind of spoiler th- spoiler free things that we can that we haven't said already about the connections between blue velvet and twin peaks but when there was that shot of the robin at the very end and so i had to look it up i'm like i remember the opening credits of twin peaks i'll be damned if he doesn't have the same and it's not the same bird it's a very thrush in the opening credits of twin peaks but it's like Dude, you did the same. Like, how am I supposed to think this is a different piece of pop culture when you have a bird like that? Like, you're you're really evoking it to me. And so, Ryan, I wanted to ask, what um, what did you see in terms of similarities that jumped out to you? Yeah, so I've seen the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, the show, uh, Fire Walk with Me, the feature film prequel including the missing pieces uh, associated with that. And the first three or four episodes of The Return. And so without going into spoilers, Laura Dern telling her high school friends not to tell, not to, not to say anything to Mike about Jeffrey was activated me doing the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing gif about like, that's Twin Peaks. Because there are moments in Fire Walk With Me that fit exactly that could take place in that same conversation. And I think, you know, the, that combined with the sexualized violence against women and the way that, you know, I found there's arguably more of it and it's, it's more aggressive in body double, but it's more realistic and harder to watch in blue velvet for me. And that treatment is very much what I identify with Twin Peaks as much of as much as the like darkness in suburbia. There's a small town where everybody has secrets and there's, you know, nefarious uh, an underbelly that like a lot of people know about and can sort of move back and forth between the dark and light in the small town. But that that to me is the the most effective thing about Twin Peaks and then maybe the most effective thing about Blue Velvet. Quick non sequitur of a question while I've got you here. What did you think about the recast in Fire Walk with me? I think, I think fi- I'm trying. I'm trying to remember because it's been a while since I've 
it's been like two or three years since I've seen it. And Lynch movies are, are so dreamlike that it's sometimes hard to <laughs> keep the memories <laughs> of them concrete in my brain. Especially because like, to me, Firewalk with me, I'll just say, is the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life, having oh, seen goodness. it. Wow two or three times it is it's one of the few movies that has given me nightmares as an adult on multiple occasions and there's just a lot of there's a lot of horrific elements but there's a lot of psychological horror in there but i mean i will say i'm i'm generally not too bothered by recastings especially if it's not a lead per se Mm -hmm. i was so i asked that mostly because it came to mind but so Laura Flynn Boyle is one plays one of the main characters on Twin Peaks in Fire Walk with Me, which is a film continuation prequel. Prequel, right? Prequel. Yep. Yeah. So uh, she wasn't available for it, so she was recast by Lucas's mom. Oh. Yeah, you can head canon Twin Peaks and One Tree Hill together. I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all, <laughs> really. So. <laughs> I haven't seen Twin Peaks, obviously. Would you both say that maybe Blue Velvet is like a like a tryout of some of these themes for Twin Peaks? It kind of sounds like they're pretty related in terms of what he's trying to do. Yeah, I think I think that is absolutely true. I think the element that gets added to Twin Peaks, either by Mark Frost, who's sort of the co-creator of Twin Peaks or because Lynch wanted to add it I I don't I generally don't know is that Twin Peaks brings in the construct of the soap opera as another genre influence. And so there's a lot more outright comedy in parts of Twin Peaks. There's a lot more of playing with narrative in a in a metatextual way, I think. Like not metatextual of, of like all neo-noirs are kind of metatextual because they're all going back to the original wave of noirs as we've been talking about. But in a way of like, it's playing with the conventions of multiple genres and layering them on each other. So I think if you take Blue Velvet, you add, you know, as the world turns, you you get closer to Twin Peaks. Also, there's a diner. That's the only thing I know about Twin Peaks (laughs) is that there's a diner and there's a diner in Blue Velvet. And I would love to go to that diner. Because it looks amazing. I was going to say, I'm a bigger fan of diners than I am of David Lynch. But there are a lot of diners in David Lynch things, which is a nice a nice bonus. So before we close out this episode, I definitely, in a, in a very frustrating, in many ways, movie, Blue Velvet, there are two MVPs. The first and by far the the most important MVP of this film is Angelo Badalamenti. I mean, that guy. Soundtrack. It's it's super. It's great. And uh I the Twin Peaks soundtrack, it's classic. I mean, I just I love it. But I also want to give props to Dennis Hopper who in a career filled with characters that are most likely clinically insane. My favorite line read of Dennis Hopper's, superseding anything from Speed, is in this movie. When he asks Kyle McLaughlin's character what his favorite beer is, and Jeffrey replies Heineken, 
And the reply to that is, Heineken? Fuck that shit. PBR! It's the line read that gets me. Like, he's just, like, so, like, fuck that shit. PBR! Like... It's an excellent line read. Oh, is um, this character a hipster? He's a he's a hipster small town gangster. I mean, I saw on Twitter a grid of political and class affiliation and uh, beer brands were mapped on it, and PBR mm-hmm. was like left wing working class. Yep, uh, they were all domestic, so Heineken wasn't on there. But I imagine that would be closer to the elite left wing. It's 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 imported. It's so, the yeah. white. Well, no, it's the white middle class kid who's never had a good beer before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. Next week, Matt joins us as Noir Vember rolls on with three films from the nineteen nineties. And in case you thought we were getting away from erotic thriller noir, we're starting with a bang uh, with Basic Instinct. We'll also be looking to see what Denzel Washington is up to in Devil in a Blue Dress. And Elmore Leonard enters the debate with Out of Sight. Ryan, where can people find you online? As of today, right now, who knows, in eight days, but right now, where can people find you online? As of right now, you can find me on Twitter and hopefully still continuing on Letterboxd as well. Uh, at silver whatever that's with a b i'm also uh steering the ship for the movie john website and i want to briefly mention that our fall 2022 physical zine is almost close to being sold out at the time of recording so if you have not ordered your copy in which i write a relationship advice column for kaiju uh, you should order that sooner rather than later there's also a very nice snack recipe in there that that definitely would be good year round it's not just for halloween guys candy's not just for halloween candy is not just for halloween (laughs) i mean everybody knows that easter has the best candy anyway i'm sorry i don't think that's controversial tessa oh okay sorry um (laughs) i did not understand what you were asking me to do just then you can find me as of right now at the by paradox on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. When this episode comes out, we will be about to release our episode on Thief of Time. You can find that currently on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can find me on Twitter, dot, 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 maybe, question mark, at Sam underscore Morris 9, and on Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. As Ryan mentioned, you can find more from all three of us on moviejohn.com, moviejawn.com. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind, find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. <laughs>